0: If 2021 was the year the world turned the tide against the pandemic, 2022 will be dominated by the need to adjust to new realities. On the one hand, there are things that have been reshaped by the crisis, such as the new world of work and the future of travel. On the other hand, as the pandemic recedes, deeper trends are reasserting themselves, such as the rise of China and the need to tackle climate change. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and this is The World Ahead. Over the coming weeks, this future gazing podcast series will focus on the key themes that will shape the year ahead, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is out now. Next year will be a study in contrasts for the rival political systems of America and China, democracy and autocracy. Which is better at delivering social stability, economic prosperity and innovation? The two superpowers aren't just competing with each other, they each want to demonstrate to the rest of the world that their particular political system is superior. It's a challenge that Joe Biden addressed directly in his first press conference as president in March 2021.
1: It is clear, absolutely clear, and most of the scholars I dealt with at Penn agree with me around the country, that this is a battle between the utility of democracies in
0: the 21st century and autocracies. The Summit for Democracy being convened by Joe Biden in December 2021 is intended to kick off a year of action to make democracies more responsive and resilient and to begin a process of democratic renewal. But in late 2022, events in America and China will highlight the workings of their respective political systems. America will hold its midterm elections. And in China, by contrast, a rather different political pageant will play out, as David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief and author of our Chaguan column, explains.
1: In China, a tightly scripted political meeting lasting just a few days will cast a remarkable shadow over the whole of 2022. The 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, scheduled to take place in the autumn of next year. In essence, it's a choreographed display of power staged amidst the marble columns, red carpets and blazing chandeliers of the Great Hall of the People, located at the western edge of Tiananmen Square in Beijing. These party congresses are held every five years and they've been used in modern times to stage orderly transfers of power between generations of leaders. But this one is a little different. Not only because it marks President Xi Jinping's first decade as China's supreme leader, but because Mr Xi broke with recent precedent by declining to anoint a successor at the last party congress in 2017.
2: Every party congress is important, but this is a particularly important one.
1: Richard McGregor is a senior fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute in Sydney and author of The Party, The Secret World of China's Communist Rulers.
2: What happens in the months leading up to the party congress is that top personnel start to be moved around different provinces. In other words, Xi is starting to get his people into place to make sure that he can be reselected as leader. Imagine in the US, for example, if they broke the two-term limit and you you were having a president who would stay for three terms. That's kind of what's happening in China in 2022.
1: But the stage management of that final press conference may also suggest how much longer Mr Xi intends to stay in office, whether that be five more years, ten more years, or even the less likely scenario that his plan is to head into a form of semi-retirement to rule from behind the scenes. To understand which of these outcomes will come to pass, you have to carefully analyse the choreography at the very end of the Congress, when Mr Xi, or just possibly a successor, leads onto stage the new Politburo Standing Committee in order of rank. Should Mr Xi wish to signal that he's stepping down after five more years, he will need to be followed onto that red carpeted dais by one or two plausible successors, people with the seniority to step up to the top job in 2027. There are for now no obvious candidates with the right combination of experience, age, and close ties to Mr Xi. It is just possible that he will feel bound to remain in charge until the Congress of 2032, when he'll be 79 years old. That version of events would be signalled if Mr Xi is trailed on stage in November by a line of unthreatening men in dark suits, either long-standing loyalists or fast-rising protégés who will be too old or too young and inexperienced to succeed the current boss at the Party Congress of 2027. To Chinese eyes, though, that serene display that Mr Xi is around for the long term is actually a serious break with tradition.
2: Outside of China, Westerners look at China and they say, oh, there's never any political reform in China, and that's because we don't think they're moving towards a liberal democracy. Inside China, from the party's viewpoint, there's been massive political reform. And the cornerstone of that political reform was building a process for an orderly transfer of power from leader to leader. And so China had done that from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, then from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. And that was a kind of incremental institutionalisation of elite politics and a great source of stability. Now she threw that out, and I think all manner of people across the spectrum were really furious about that. But really, there's nothing they can do about it. Now, I think under Xi Jinping, you know, the rules have always been bent a little bit here or there, but you know, Xi Jinping's treatment of the rules reminds me very much of Captain Barbarossa in that film, Pirates of the Caribbean, when he was asked about the Pirates Code and why he was breaking the Pirates Code, and Captain Barbarossa said,
0: The code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules.
2: And I think that's the way Xi has treated many of these things.
1: Whichever path Mr. Xi chooses, the next Congress is likely to resemble the communist equivalent of a coronation. China's leaders see ever more reasons to be confident about the advantages of their political system. They're ready to promote their model as one that delivers better outcomes for more people than the West's fractious individualism.
0: With me here now are Zanny Minton-Beddoes, Editor-in-Chief of The Economist, and John Prido, our US editor and host of Checks and Balance, our podcast on US politics. Hello to you both. Hi, Tom. Hi, John. Hi, Tom. Nice to be with you. Hi, Zanny. John, I'll start with you, if I may. We heard there from David Rennie just how carefully stage-managed things are going to be in China next year – So how's that going to compare with the political environment in America in the run up to the midterm elections?
3: Well, I would say perhaps in some of his dark moments, Joe Biden could wish for some of that stage management to apply to American politics. It will be more chaotic in the US next year. The system is more chaotic. That's a good thing in some ways. But from the point of view of the president, he's looking at a midterm election where he's highly likely to lose his majority in the House of Representatives, and possibly his majority in the Senate as well. It's already really hard for Democrats to get bills through Congress because their majorities are so tight. I think by the end of the year, it will become impossible. So what we're looking at is, I think, Joe Biden's final year of being able to get some stuff done legislatively, albeit not very much. And then what Tends to happen is the president moves towards a different phase in his presidency and he'll be more focused on foreign policy. So I think they'll be starting to think about that already.
0: Okay. And then, of course, looming over all of this is Donald Trump. What's at stake for him and what role
3: is he going to be playing in the midterms? Well, almost everybody assumes now that Donald Trump will run in 2024. That's become the conventional wisdom. And maybe it's wrong. Maybe something you know, will come from left field, or maybe he'll decide he doesn't want it. But I think it's certainly in his interests pretty much to keep himself at the center of attention um, by hinting that he's going to run again in 2024. That rather freezes competition in the Republican primary, because whoever wants the nomination basically needs Trump's blessing. And so he will continue to be you know, presence in American politics. And if Republicans do win their majority in the House of Representatives and maybe the Senate. He's effectively, even though he's not in office, he's the de facto head of a party that controls one, maybe two branches of Congress. And so he becomes more important. Okay. Now, Zani, we've
0: heard there about stage management in China and this sort of chaotic carnival of democracy in America. How's this all going to play into the broader US-China rivalry?
4: Well, I think you've answered your own question. On the one side, you have staged, managed displays of power. On the other side, you have democracies in all their frustrating messiness. This will play into the Chinese propaganda machine, which will be able to. It's already saying that Western democracy is utterly dysfunctional, and there'll be more of that. And actually, as we go through 2022, I think there will be a sense in America that democracy is dysfunctional, because the combination of what John has just laid out, almost certainty that the Democrats are going to do very badly in the midterms, quite possibly lose both houses. A growing sense that not only is Donald Trump likely to run, but also that the Republicans have a fairly strong chance of winning in 2024, will, I think, return some of this sense of, you know, it's an absolutely catastrophic moment for US democracy. You'll hear things like the constitutional crisis, biggest one since the Civil War. There will be a sense of nervousness, panic, and at the same time, nothing will get done. I actually, I'm even more pessimistic than John. I don't think there'll be any significant legislation whatsoever next year. Expect lots and lots of talk about the dysfunctionality of American democracy. Can American democracy work? Is it under threat? And at the same time, you have this totally staged, managed and display of, of power and stability from China designed to suggest that it is the better system. Now, of course, I hope that many people around the world will not be persuaded of this. But nonetheless, the optics for democracy next year are not looking so great. And the optics superficially of China being a strong and stable place will be very much on display.
0: Now, aside from these political set pieces in both China and America, where else is the US-China rivalry likely to manifest itself in 2022?
4: The last few years, you've seen a really dramatic deterioration of the US-China relationship. I sort of set it back to 2015, 2016. I think it just predates Donald Trump, but took a step change with his presidency. In the US, there is a bipartisan view now that China is a very serious threat, that China is trying to dominate this century, and that the US basically has to stop that. At the same time, China has become, under Xi Jinping, more aggressive, more assertive, even as it's become much, much more authoritarian. And so the two sides are set up for a much more confrontational relationship. We saw it with the trade wars under Donald Trump. It's got no better under Joe Biden. And I don't see any reason for it to get better next year. There were at the COP in Glasgow some welcome efforts by the two sides to say that they would work together to address climate change. But I think that was some warm words more than the possibility or the likelihood of any real action next year. We can see flashpoints over Taiwan, we can see flashpoints over the South China Sea, we can see flashpoints on trade, on the decoupling of tech and supply chains. So I don't worry about actual military conflict, but I don't see any shift towards a ability for these two to work constructively together. It's a very tense standoff in which one side, the Chinese, think that the US, it's a dysfunctional democracy. The East is rising, the West is declining. That is what Xi Jinping says all the time. And they really believe that. And in the US, there is a real concern that China is actually becoming a threatening power.
0: Indeed, and at their recent virtual summit, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping essentially agreed to disagree on all those things. Thank you, Zanny and John. In a moment, we'll consider the economic angle of this rivalry. But first, a quick reminder, if you want unlimited access to the Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Zannie, let's turn now to another aspect of US-China rivalry, which is in economic management. What differences are most striking
4: there? Well, actually, two strike me as being very interesting at the moment, which is China and the US are taking fundamentally different approaches to opening up their economies after Covid first, and secondly, how to deal with the big tech giants. If you look at how they're handling the next phase of Covid – In the US, and indeed, you know, much of the world, basically, we're entering the kind of beginnings of the post COVID world, we're realizing that it is becoming endemic, that we need to live with this. But with vaccinations, everything is beginning to open up, people are beginning to move around, travel is opening up. China still has a zero COVID, zero tolerance policy, which basically keeps the country closed off. And because of that focus on stability and staged, managed choreography in 2022, I think it's highly unlikely that that is going to change because it's very hard for the Chinese government to now say to its citizens, oh, it's actually okay to live with COVID, having scared the bejesus out of the citizenry and having had this extremely, extremely draconian COVID approach where if one person tests positive, the entire cities are, are kind of locked down. It's going to be hard to switch that off. And so that's going to be a very interesting test. And then the second big difference is the kind of how to deal with the tech companies. And if you look at 2021, you have had in both parts of the world a frustration with the monopoly power and impact and supposedly pernicious impact of the technology companies. But if you look at what's happened in the US, well, you've you've had their CEOs hauled in front of Congress, you've had lots of outrage, but not really very much has happened yet. If you look in China, you know, the last few months, Xi Jinping has essentially decided to cut the titans of Chinese technology companies down to size, shut down huge amounts of activity, he's very dramatically shifted the goalposts. And so the question there, I think, is is kind of which one works, because I'm sure there are plenty of US policymakers who wish they could do what the Chinese have been able to do. But actually, my own supposition is that in the long run, the sort of draconian action that the Chinese are taking will dent entrepreneurship. And if you really are so unpredictable and you change the rules very, very dramatically and you make it very, very hard for what has been the engine of growth in China to operate that I think that will have negative economic consequences. So my big economic bet for 2022 is that actually the US economy surprises us on the upside and the Chinese economy surprises us on the downside because it has also got this very big debt problem that we're seeing in the property sector with Evergrande being the the big property development company and its financial troubles being the, the main example of that so far. I think we'll see more of that in 2022. If you put together zero COVID, the clampdown on big tech companies, and more broadly in China, the debt crisis. I think you could see a surprisingly slow-growing Chinese economy next year.
0: John, as we just heard from Zanny, American politicians in both parties are itching to take the tech giants down a peg or two, just as Xi Jinping has done in China. Do you think looking at what's happening in China makes that more or less likely?
3: I think, in a sense, it makes it less likely. I think, though, a lot of the rhetoric in America, as on both sides, is anti-big tech for slightly different reasons. For conservatives, a lot of this is a question about free speech. They think the tech companies are censoring conservatives for people on the democratic side, there's more concern about sort of monopoly or, or monopsony power. But I think there's not an agreement yet about how tech ought to be regulated in America. I have a hunch that people faced with China in the US and locked into this sense of economic competition, they might start to think about these big American tech companies in a slightly different way. They might start to think, well, hang on, these are sort of national champions, and maybe we need to be a little bit careful with them. That's not what's going on at the moment. But that would be a out of consensus prediction I'd make for 2020. 22 I'll probably be proved wrong.
0: Yeah, we have heard rhetoric of that kind in the past from Mark Zuckerberg saying that, you know, basically, if you don't let Facebook do whatever it wants with like launching currencies and things, then you're just going to let the Chinese win. And I don't know whether he would be so keen to advance that sort of argument now. But I suppose more broadly, this rivalry between the two systems, they are sort of saying implicitly that they want to be judged on stability, on growth and on innovation. We've talked a lot about stability and the contrast there. Zani is saying that on growth, actually, maybe the Chinese might not be looking so good relative to America next year. What do we think, though, on innovation? Isn't that the area where
4: America clearly
0: does have a lead, even if if China is catching up?
4: In the long run, absolutely, yes. For next year, I think the Chinese economy is going to underperform relative to expectations, and I hope the US economy overperforms. But in a big picture sense, I'm still, you know, I'm a firm liberal, a firm believer in the virtues of the market economy, the real market economy. And I think if you ask me to put my bets on one of those two places in the long term, it would be on the US. And the reason is that I think in the end, innovation comes from free societies, societies that welcome immigrants, societies that have the rule of law, societies where ideas can flourish. And the US is still that in spades. Now, that said, there are areas where china has caught up very dramatically and there are certainly areas of technology you know parts of ai where they are catching up and are probably ahead if, because china has a huge number of people very digitally savvy you've got as a result an enormous amount of data scant regard for kind of privacy concerns around that data so anything that is based on gathering an enormous amount of data they can catch up and they can innovate very fast and they're very determined to So they had their equivalent of a Sputnik moment. They are determined to catch up and they have done and they're further than the U.S. in some places. But in the longer run, I think the U.S. system is much more attuned to creating the conditions that really boost innovation. So my my money would be there.
3: I agree with Zani. I mean, there's an element of you would say that, wouldn't you? With both (laughs) of us, clearly we're cheering for one team in, in one sense, though I do think the arguments are right. It's also the case that, you know, though there aren't that many pieces of bipartisan legislation in Congress these days, one of the few was the bipartisan increase in funding for basic scientific research that we saw in 2021 go through Congress. So there is a bit of a sense in America amidst all the the rhetoric and the China bashing, some of which I think we both agree is pretty unhelpful and maybe overdone. There is a bit of a sense now that America is in this competition and that the federal government really has to be helpful rather than hindering American competitiveness vis-a-vis China. I mean, basic funding for scientific research has been too low for a long time, it's going to be a bit higher. That's a good thing. And that's partly attributable to this sense of competition with China.
4: Can I just add one thing to that, which is that I think the biggest threat to our rosy prediction there is America itself. If America thinks that the way to get ahead in this is to quote unquote, become more like China in the sense that it becomes more closed, more government directed, more paranoid. I think that becomes a real, real problem. And secondly, to go back where this conversation started, the sort of dysfunctionality of American government and the inability to pass necessary legislation is another real Achilles heels. There are serious challenges that the US has. But fundamentally, I think a market economy is much more likely to be a long-term innovative economy.
0: Thanks, Annie, and thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. And we'd love to hear your views so we can find out what you're enjoying and make more of it. So please head over to economist.com slash worldaheadsurvey and let us know what you think. That's economist.com slash worldaheadsurvey. This podcast was produced by Simon Jarvis and the executive producer was Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.